Good morning, King's Chapel. Turn in your Bibles to John, a gospel according to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are Bibles in the back in the sound booth. Um, I, would, I would grab one. We, I'm going to dismiss the kids. You can grab one then, but um, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. I want to make sure everyone has the Scriptures. It's our gift to you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in the gospel according to John. Chapter 7, verse 53, last verse of chapter 7, into chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. They went out each to his own house, but Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher... This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on. Sin no more. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Amen? Great story. Great narrative. So kids, you're dismissed to the Children's Church. Please make sure they're checked in. And we are together in John chapter 7. As you notice, we began with the very last verse of chapter 7 and jumped right into chapter 8. But this morning, we are faced with a situation, a rather different, difficult situation. I've been preaching here. Uh, this year, we celebrated 10 years. I probably preached maybe over 400 sermons. And this is the third time, I think it's 13 books we went through. We do book studies here. I think this is the third time in 400 sermons that we are faced with this complicated text of, the, of this nature. So what we're going to do this morning is something a little bit different, rather than just getting right into the text and explaining the text and then bringing the text to us today in application. What I want to do is before we talk about the text, uh, go into the text, we need to talk about this text of Scripture. Our text that we just read, as you already know, has been placed in the Bible at the day, which we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, on the day in which was the Festival of Booths. We've been studying in chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus leaves Galilee and goes to Jerusalem to be part of and to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's the same thing. It's a two-part celebration. One was a joyous celebration. It was the end of the harvest, and the Israelites were praising God, joyfully celebrating God's faithfulness in the harvest. There were agricultural uh, uh, culture, very important. The second part of this cultural, this feast, I should say, of, of booths, was commemorating that the Israelites had been taken care of. God had provided for them as they wandered in the desert for 40 years on the way to the promised land. As you remember from the past couple of weeks, they had to build booths. These leafy sub, this leafy branch uh, would be taken and they would make booths and shelters and would live in them for a year. Uh, for a week, excuse me, in a year, that'd be tough, but uh, for a week. And they would celebrate and remember God's faithfulness to them. Last week, we talked about this festival. At the end of the festival, there was this big celebration and this water ceremony, if you remember. And God, uh, uh, the priest would come up from the Pool of Siloam, which, which was being fed from a living stream, and they would get this flag on, this golden pitcher. They'd go back to the temple. They would pour the water. It was this water ceremony. And it was, a, it, was, it was symbolic. It was a picture that God provided for them with water from the rock in the wilderness, and they were thanking God and remembering God's provision that, that Moses, remember, he struck the rock and water brought forth. 
but it also was a, a, a picture of the promised messianic age, the coming of the Holy Spirit, or the coming of the Spirit that God would pour out in the end times. Zechariah talked about it. Um, Ezekiel talked about it. And that the, 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 it was symbolic as they poured the water of this messianic, eschatological end where God would just bring salvation and bring the Messiah and bring this eschatological healing to the earth. And when the festival came to a conclusion, as the, as the, uh, the worshipers were shaking the palm branches and, and shouting the Hallel, the save us now, save us now, at the end it became silent. And many people believe, which I do, that that's when Jesus stood up, pointing to the actual feast and the fulfillment of that feast, of the pouring of the water. He said, come to me, chapter 7, verse 37. Come to me if you are thirsty. Come to me and drink, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. I have provided for you, come to me, and the Spirit will be given. And it says later on in chapter 7 that that will happen when Jesus goes to the cross, his resurrection from the dead, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. That's chapter 7, following through to verse 52. Look in your Bibles, though. You will notice that chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 52, at the end of the feast, let me get there, they replied, are you the Galilean too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now look at chapter 8, verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them. Still on the day of the feast. And what we find is in chapter 8, Verses, well, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, there's this narrative, there's this story that's plopped in in the midst of this day, this narrative, this, this feast of tabernacles. And, and what's so cool is that when Jesus says in verse, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, he's actually pointing to something going on in that feast, and we're going to talk about it. So in between chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, and chapter 8, verse 12, back at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booth, there's a story that's inserted, a short paragraph that's kind of just there. It's kind of just there. Uh, it was, it's a very well-known, it's a beautiful story, probably you've heard it. Most of you maybe even heard that passage of Scripture, that narrative, that story, that incident that took place. But if you have a Bible in your hand, maybe you brought one from home, and I'm not sure I should have looked at the pew Bibles, what you will find is there are brackets around that passage that we just read, our Scripture lesson for today, or an asterisk star or something pointing somewhere else that says this. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So our text this morning is not without some complications. What does that mean? So we're going to spend some time talking about that, and then we'll launch into the text, and we'll end, as we always do, in the gospel, reveling in the gospel, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to change. But at this point, up to this point that we have been studying John 7, John 1 through 7, there's overwhelming evidence that John, the companion, the apostle of Jesus, wrote this gospel account. And what you have in your hand is the eyewitness reporting from John, who was there, who witnessed the perfect life of Jesus, his, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. John was there. But as a church family, King's Chapel, what we believe, okay, what we believe and what we hold to when we say closed fist, which means not negotiable here at this church, what we believe is that the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God is the, is the revealing or the unveiling of who God is to us. It teaches us about who the Lord is. And the Reformers, if you know anything about the Reformation, uh, they believed in sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone. Sola scriptura, not solo scripture, that there's no other truth, but that the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God is the only infallible, without uh, error, reliable, inerrant authority for the Christian faith. It contains knowledge of salvation and knowledge of God. It is authoritative for us. We don't come to the Bible this way. We come to the Bible this way. It's over us. It's the final word from God. 
So we come to a passage like this that says nowhere in the early manuscripts this passage is found. We need to talk about it. We hold tightly to the scriptures and the authority of scripture in this place. But this creates tension. And we need to talk about it. And it's good because we can talk about it. Again, is it authoritative? Can we preach this text that's not found in any early manuscript as we would any other text? So I want to break that down to you this morning. If you don't like lectures, you didn't like school, you still don't like school, I'll wake you up in about 10 minutes because that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go into more of a lecture, then we'll get into the preaching, okay? We have to deal with this textual issue. We'll draw some principles from it, and again, we'll end worshiping the Lord, praising God, our good God and Savior, his name is Jesus, okay? So let me just tell you a few things about this text. Number one, most scholars, most scholars, a lot smarter than me, believe that this has been added after John wrote his eyewitness account, his gospel account, for several reasons. So a lot of scholars, everyone pretty much is in agreement that this story was written after John had penned his gospel account. There has external reasons and internal reasons. I'm not going to bore you with a million different quotes. I read a lot of them this week. Let me just give you two. Well, I'm going to give you a lot more, but two right now. Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, he's from Trinity Evangelical Seminary. If you don't know him, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar, probably one of the most renowned New Testament scholars that's alive today. He writes this in his commentary. Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, NIV does, or to regulate it or to put it down in a footnote. He says these verses are present in most of the medieval Greek minuscule manuscripts. We'll talk about that for a minute. But they are virtually absent from all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. Brilliant New Testament scholar. One more. His name is Andreas Kostenberg. Wonderful commentary called the Baker Exegetical Commentary. He writes this. This represents, this story, overwhelming evidence that the section is non-Johannine. In other words, not written from John. End quote. So up to the 5th century, the story is not found in any manuscripts. In fact, all the early church fathers, the first few hundred years, have nothing in, this, in their commentaries written on this text. So early church fathers have commentaries on the Bible, and when you open up their commentaries, when it gets to John, they go right from John 52 right to 812 in the early church. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so not only is there nothing written on it, but this story just seems to be plopped in the middle of this day that's going on in the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's some concerns. We need to talk about that. Number two, And I'm going to do this carefully, but listen to me. Again, I hope I'm not boring you. But there's something that you need to know if you want to understand this text. It's called textual criticism. Okay? Big fancy word, textual criticism. Textual criticism is the discipline where scholars, New Testament scholars here particularly anyway, evaluate the external and the internal evidence to try to determine which reading is most likely the original that the person wrote. So what they're doing as textual uh, uh, criticism is to evaluate the manuscripts to try to determine what is the most likely the original writings of the author who wrote the book. Now, you may not know this. This may be brand new or you may know this already. But we don't have the very first written letter of the Apostle Paul to Rome or John. The original autograph that they call him or the original letter that actually Peter wrote with his own pen in that room when he wrote it in, wherever he was, or Paul in prison, all the original autograph, the very first ones, we don't have copies of those. We, don't have, we have plenty of copies. We don't have the original, okay? I don't know if you know that or not. I think if we did, we'd probably kill each other for it or worship them and kiss the glass they're in. I don't know, but some crazy, stupid thing like that, which was never meant to do. We don't, what we have is copies, some very, very, very old copies, Okay? So for 1,500 years, printing press comes into, into being. First printed Bible is 1516. So for 1,500 years, what we have is copyists meticulously writing down word for word from one scripture, writing it down for another scripture. So if you want John, the gospel according to John, a copyist has to sit and write every single Greek letter. Over 1,000 years. 
It's a lot of hard work and very meticulous. And let me tell you, they took it very seriously. So the task of a critic, of, of a textual critic, is to look at this vast variety of manuscripts that date way back close to the original and look at all these manuscripts and then come up with what is called a critical text. That is what represents the original author's writing. They ask a lot of questions like, how many manuscripts are there to have this story in it? What are the dates of these manuscripts? Let's date them back. When did we get this? What part of the world are they in? They ask all these questions, and let me tell you, brilliant men have come from all over to examine these manuscripts and figuring out exactly what was the original author's writings. Okay, you following me so far? All right, a little bit more, because I want to tell you that one other thing that's important. In the New Testament, as you know, is in Greek. There are several different Greek manuscripts, parchments, pieces of New Testament that's been found all over the world, okay? That date very, very old. Some of them are called unseals, U-N-C-I-A-L-S. They're capital Greek letters. They're called unseals. Then there's a script called minuscules. They're small Greek letters, then there's a smaller group of, of what's called papyri, which is written on papyra plant. They would flatten it out and use that to write them. They're very ancient. And then lastly, there's things called lectionaries. They're a collection of New Testament manuscripts that use for, for, for corporate worship. So there's at least four different groups of manuscripts. So how a textual critic knows whether or not this is in there or should be in there or not is partly due because of the abundance of manuscripts, parchments, papyri, lectionaries, large and small Greek letters that we have. An abundance of them. Let me give you a for instance. In the ancient world, in the, before the, you know, in 300 BC, all the way up to 100 AD, there's been a lot of people writing a lot of stuff, right? Yes, say yes, say yes. You can find this information on, on Desiring God website. Let me just give you a couple of ancient manuscripts from other things other than the Bible. There are 10 known existing manuscripts of what's called the Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, composed around 50 AD, 50 BC. There are 20 manuscripts found that they have of what's called Livy's Roman history written around the time of Jesus. There's 20 of them. There's only two manuscripts from what is called the, the Annals of Roman History by Tacitus, or, or uh, is the History of the Roman Empire, was written probably around 100 AD. There's two. That's it. So you have, and the list goes on and on. You have all these different writings, and all they could find is very small amounts of, of manuscripts dating back when Jesus' day, not with the New Testament. In the New Testament, between the large Greek, the small Greek, the, the, uh, the different parchments, there is over 5,800 manuscripts. Not full, pieces, parchments, and some full, 5,800. Compare that to the rest of God has carefully and beautifully and gloriously and wonderfully preserved his word. 5,800 pieces. No book in ancient history, even comes remotely close to the New Testament uh, manuscripts, right? So having a lot has its own problems because there's a lot of things to look through, but it's also the avenue in which textual critics look at the text and the text actually correct itself by having so many. For instance, if there's two manuscripts in all of history where John's the Gospel according to John, this story is written in. One has it in it and one doesn't have it in it. How do you know? But if there's hundreds upon hundreds and none of them have, or one out of 500, you know what the original author intended to write. So having a lot also helps. F.F. F. Bruce, a brilliant scholar, I think he passed in 1990, New Testament Greek scholar, he said this. If the number, no, excuse me. If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, so writing errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small. Okay? If, you, if I gave you a book... I gave 10 people a book, and I said, I want you to go sit down and write out every word for word. 
I'll be able to tell your mistakes from that person's mistakes. You make an A that looks a little bit like a B, and you can see that throughout the, 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 the manuscript. So they can sit down with all this and actually get back to what the original author said. Now, let me conclude with two things that I want you to know before we jump into the text. Number one, very important, listen very carefully. The very minor and small amount of scripture text that is in question today in our Bibles does not in any way, shape, or form change any truth that we know to be absolutely certain of the text and of the scripture. Doesn't change at all. So we can say with certainty that no truth is changed by the uncertainty of this text. In fact, if we're honest, I, I, I think the text and the bracket and the New Testament scholars that want us to know these things, I think that says something extremely important and has great integrity. If there's something that they wanted to hide, if there's something that no one wants to know that somehow is going to violate Scripture, somehow teach something contrary to Scripture, they would hide it, they wouldn't tell us. But here they're just saying, hey, listen, we have nothing to fear. We can't find this anywhere in the first few hundred years of the, of the, of the, of the, of the manuscripts that we have. Again, F.F. Bruce, I think he does a great job. He says this. The variant readings about which any doubt remains affect no material question of historical fact or of Christian faith and practice. Whatever uncertainties copying has contributed, the Bible remains virtually unchanged and is teaching undimmed. The texts of the Old and New Testament alike have been preserved even in the copies in a remarkably pure form. Not a single article of faith, not a single moral precept is in doubt. No material question of historical fact or of Christian faith and practice, end quote. So what I want you to see this morning is when this is being shown in Scripture, it's a matter of actual integrity. They're being honest. They're not trying to hide and deceive people. They're being honest with that. And it doesn't change one single thing about Scripture, about all the rest of Scripture and all what the Bible teaches. Number two, and this is important too, and we'll jump right into the text. Every person I've read, all the New Testament Greek scholars, all say the same thing, that may, this text may not have been the original writing of John when John first penned his gospel account, but the story is true. But the story is true. In fact, there's hints of it in the third century that it was handed down in oral tradition. In other words, the story is being, being told by people who have been seen and heard it happen, but then it made its way into the text later on. D.A. Carson says this. On the other hand, there is little reason for doubting that the event that we talked about, that we read in Scripture, here described occurred. Even if it in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books, the rule of, the rule of authority. So it did occur. Bruce Metzger, another brilliant scholar, says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. Leon Morris, another brilliant New Testament scholar, and we'll end here on this quote. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks to our condition and it can scarcely have been composed in the early church with its sternness about sexual sin. It is thus worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic piece or part of John's writing, end quote. So this is what we're going to do for the rest of our time together. We'll find in our text... Everything mentioned in our text, all what is being taught in our text is in the scriptures. All throughout the gospel can be supported by multiple passages of scripture. Even when their authentic authorship, we're not quite sure, is in question. We see it throughout scripture. So although not in the original text, although it may not have the authority, doesn't have the authority as Paul says, all scriptures God breathe, let this story, as we look into this story in a moment, let this story be a reverberating heartbeat, a resounding heartbeat, and an indicator pointing to the authority which is in the scripture that this story clearly points to. And let's worship the Lord because he's a forgiving God, a loving God, a God who calls people to repentance and loves people. That's what this story is about. So let's look at it. Three things. One is, and we'll go through this quickly, okay? I'm, I'm keeping an eye on time. First is, well, that, here's our outline. 
So we're going to look through this quickly. Just three things we're going to look at this morning. The first is the test provided. A woman is caught in adultery and provides this, this test that they want to test Jesus. Number two, the truth proposal. <laughs> Jesus is going to reveal something in his question. In his answer, excuse me. And then finally, the transforming provision. Okay, let's look at that together. Chapter 7, verse 52. A woman is caught in sin. And it provides a group of wicked men to try and put Jesus to the test. Chapter 7, verse 52. They went to each his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he must have been there. He, he, he's, he's back in the temple. He did a lot of that back and forth toward the end of his life, his earthly life. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Jesus' day, the rabbis would read Scripture and then sit down as a sign of authority and teach. They would sit and teach, not like today, right? So all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching, and there's a commotion, and heads are turning, and people are coming impolitely and pushing their way in. And look at verse 3. They push their way through the crowd. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. The scribes and the Pharisees. John never uses those terms together, scribe and Pharisee. It's found in the Synoptic Gospels. Right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. That's why they say, well, ah, John really wrote that. He never puts them together. But what you see here is the scribes. They were the expositors of Scripture. They were the lawyers. They were highly esteemed as theologians and, and catechists. They, they provide principles of Scripture. They're, they were the jurists. They were highly recognized scholars of the law of Moses. And they say to him in verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, when they say teacher, we don't know if it's sarcasm. Probably is. Now, in the law of Moses, excuse me, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you say? They said this to what? Test him. That word test can be translated tempt him. See, God tests us to grow in our faith. Satan tests us to destroy us. They wanted to destroy Jesus. We're going to test you that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, think about this narrative for a minute. Do you really think she came walking in the temple, chewing gum, blowing bubbles, like this is all right? I don't think so. I think she came against her will. I think she came by force. I think she came probably kicking and screaming, no doubt in tears, humiliated in front of all these men humiliated as her guilt is being exposed, as her sin is being exposed through this, in this crowd and brought before the Savior and placed in front of everyone. There she was at the feet maybe at the time or standing and all the religious leaders are around her, surrounding her. I want you to feel that. Very intimidating. But there's something really wrong here. The question and their attitude and their line of question is something's really wrong. There's something really missing. You see, they weren't interested in a Bible study. Well, the, you know, the law says this, teacher, why don't you tell us? You're a teacher from God. We respect you. Tell us. That's not what it was about. When they say, what do you think? It wasn't that they were trying to get to the truth. They were trying to, to trap him. Let me read to you the law and see if you can see what the problem is. Something's missing. Something's not right. Maybe when Jesus wrote on the ground, we don't know what it was. Maybe he wrote Leviticus 20.10. I don't know, but this is what it says. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. It's not rocket science. It takes two to tango. They brought the woman to Jesus. Somebody's missing. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The authorities were not interested in the merit of the case. They were doing this not for justice, but for a trap. Most scholars believe when it says being caught in the act of adultery means literally just that. There's no cell phones, cameras back then, right? 
like they raided the house, some fornication police broke in and kicked the door in. I mean, that's what it looks like. One commentator says that it was probably a setup. Actually, a couple of them said. This one commentator, this is what he wrote. There is absolutely no question of the witnesses, because they have witnesses, they, they caught her. There is absolutely no question of the witnesses having seen the couple in a compromising situation. For example, coming from a room in which they were alone or even lying together on the same bed, the actual physical movements of the cuffs bowl must have been capable of no other explanation, and the witnesses must have seen exactly the same act in exactly the same time in the presence of each other so that their disposition would be identical in every respect. It's a trap. They set this woman up for a trap, and they're using her. They're using her sin as an opportunity to try to destroy Jesus. To make him uncredible in what he's teaching. If he says, let her go. Oh, so you violate the law of Moses. I see that. So you are above the law. You, can't, you, you, you broke the law of Moses. If he says, leave her alone. Or if he says, stone her, right? Instead of saying, let her go. And then like, oh, you broke the law of Moses. They're like, all right, get some rocks. Let, 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 give it to me. I'll, let me do the first one. He's puts himself in the place of violating Roman law. You can't put a woman to death for adultery in Roman law. So he put himself above the Roman law. They feel like we got him now. Now what is he going to say? Right? Everyone I read this week too also said that stoning women for adultery was not like a common offense. It was very, very rare. There's grace and mercy in the law as well. Very, very, com- very, very uncommon. But here you see the legalists who love to try to trap Jesus. You know, you're God, I know the law better than you, and let's see if I can't catch you in something, right? You find that all over Scripture, Matthew 22. Tell us, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Tell us. It says, Jesus was aware of their malice and said to him, why put me to the test, you hypocrite? Show me the coin whose face is on it. Go pay taxes to Caesar. Quiet them, they walked away. Mark 3, again, he entered the synagogue. A man had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he was going to heal this man on the Sabbath or not, so that they may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he turns to them and he's like, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Sounds familiar. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and he was restored. See, they, they're always looking to try to trap Jesus, trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong for their own wickedness, sinfulness of their hearts at the expense of someone else. Self-righteous, indignation. These men are about mission, but mission by using people. Using this woman, they're not interested in her. They're not interested in dealing with their sin. They're not interested in seeking any kind of restitution, repentance. All they care about is trying to use her to get to Jesus. So the moral of the story really is legalists don't care about people. They only care about looking good. And they only want justice on everybody else, certainly not them. The test provided. Look at the truth. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and he said, okay. Let him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice immediately, he doesn't call her a whore, a slut, any kind of derogatory. He calls her a woman, Gagne. In fact, that Greek term, when it's coupled with a male in a sentence, it says it's translated wife. Do you know that's the same Greek term that's used at the bride of Christ in Revelation 17? Do you know that's the same word that Jesus calls out from the cross to his mom? Woman. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. God, the Lord Jesus Christ in our text, is not soft-pedaling sin. Adultery is sin, a grievous sin. It's so important and so significant that God has something like 600 laws in the Old Testament, but he picked 10 to write on a stone, and that was one of them. It's a capital offense. It robs God of his intrinsic, uh, his ascribed glory. It's an offense to him because a marriage covenant like the covenant with him violates a severe breaching of that covenant that we make with each other before God. Adultery has devastating effects on family, children. We're told in 1 Corinthians 7 that our bodies are no longer ours. We're in covenant together. It is a grievous, 
sin. But is the sin of adultery breaking the marriage covenant or the sin of fornication, which is a sin sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, is it unpardonable? Is it unforgivable? Absolutely not. God forgives all sins, forgives all sins for those who turn from him and ask for forgiveness. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. I'm here to tell you that's all of what the scripture says. There is no sin. Listen, there is no sin that God will not forgive except the sin of going into eternity, rejecting the Spirit's work in your life, pointing you to the Messiah. If you turn your back on Jesus, if you turn your back on the Spirit who is shining the light of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, in your face, and you die without him, there is no forgiveness for you. This sin of this woman was open to public. But let's not kid ourselves. Our sin may be more private, but we have sin. She was brought before the crowd. And even if we manage to hide our sin from public view, every single sin, every single evil that I have committed and you have committed laid bare, is laid bare before the eyes of our God. He knows every sinful thought, everything we entertain, all the hatred we fester up in our hearts for those who hurt us. He knows every deceptive word that we've ever said. He knows what we do and what we say. Everything is laid open before the eyes of our God. He knows the sins that we commit. We're alone, and no one knows. Like this woman, we've all been caught in the act of sin because God knows. He doesn't soft-pedal sin. Number two, Jesus rose and he said, let him without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Was not saying, Jesus is not saying that you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect in order to say anything about sin. In other words, all authorities must be sinless before there can be justice. That's not what he's saying, because then there will be no justice. So what does he mean? A lot of theologians and commentaries get into what does it mean without sin? Those of you who without sin cast the first stone. Does he say those of you without the sin of adultery, those of you without sexual sin, are they pointing to the same sin that she is doing? Or is it those of you without any sin, no sin at all? Okay, let me tell you what I think. I, think it'd be, I don't think Jesus is pointing to the sin of adultery because I don't think all those people who walked away committed adultery. I think what Jesus was doing in this particular, I'll tell you why, but this particular moment, at this particular day, on this particular incident, which is not the norm, was pointing to their hypocrisy. That's what I think he was doing. I, I think what Jesus was doing is upholding the law but yet pulling the rug out from underneath them, pointing out to them their own unfitness to judge and to be her executors. He did not deny the woman's guilt, nor deny the law's sanctity. He increased the, Lord's, the law's power and exposed their sin. Right? That's what sin, that's what law does. It exposes sin. I think Jesus, who's the true and better Moses, in this particular day, at this moment, looked into the hearts of these hypocrites and called them out. That's what I think happened. So he's proposing, he's pushing back, he's exposing their hearts. The point is not that you have to be sinless to just to be any kind of, handle any justice. The point is that righteousness and justice should be done with grace and mercy. Otherwise you become like this heartless hypocrisy individual or full of hypocrisy like the Pharisees. I don't think you have to be perfect. I don't think a judge has to be perfect. I don't think you calling on someone whom you love and sharing with them the things that you see that are harmful for them. First Corinthians 5, Paul says, judge those in the church. Peter talks about judgment begins in the household of God. Matthew 7, Jesus talks about not judging in a hypocritical way. In fact, if you got a dust in somebody else's eye and you see that dust, but you got this giant pole sticking out of your head, get your own house in order first. I think that's what he's talking about. That's what he's articulating. He's saying, you guys are hypocrites. You're judging this woman, and yet you have sin. You are a self-righteous hypocrite. You have sin. Number two. I think his proposal, you, who wants to throw the first stone, is revealing how callous they are toward this woman. How, how cold and distant and callous they are toward this woman. I mean, they're not interested in any repentance. They're not interested in any restoration. They only care about using her. 
So I think he's revealing their hearts. I think that he's, he's showing them how wicked they are toward this woman. But I think it also, he says, who wants to throw the first stone? He's showing how wicked they are toward the Son of God. They're talking to God who is perfect, who have never sinned, and they want to destroy him. And you know what they're doing? They're taking the scripture, which he is, and they're using the scripture against him. That's what legalists love to do. Use the scripture for their own advantage. And you know what else I think this when Jesus says, you know what? Who wants to throw the first stone? You know what else I think he's doing? In the law, the one who threw the first stone is the witnesses. That's why in Acts 7, Stephen, somebody had to hold a coat, remember? Because you if you're the witness and you're the accuser and you're the one that gives testimony, you throw the first stone. Jesus is like, all right, who brought the accusation? Better be careful. You throw the first stone, but just remember, if they're innocent or there's something, a problem in your witness and testimony, guess what we get to do? We get to bust you in the head with some rocks too. So all right, who's going to go first? <laughs> like, uh, let's step up. Who's going first? Anybody going first? Uh, let's put this back in your court. And you know what it did? I think it exposed them. Now, it says in verse 8 that he went down, he wrote back on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, interesting, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I don't know, and we don't know, they went away with shame, like, ah, oh, I'm definitely a wicked man. I, I certainly am not sinless. Or did they go away like this? How dare you call me off of my sin, but I'm not doing the first stone. I'm not taking a chance. I don't know. But each one got up and left. Look at the transformation. Chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus stands up and says, woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now sin no more. Notice again. He calls her woman. It's respectful. She says, no one has forgiven me. And then Jesus speaks to her. Let me tell you this, family, listen. This is what you and I want to hear from the lips of Jesus. Not just for adulteress. Every single one of us wants to hear this from the lips of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Not simple acquittal. Not simple non-condemnation. He, he wasn't condoning her sin. He says, you're going to live differently because you came into contact with me. In fact, the command is a continuous action of something that she had started. So basically saying, stop your sinful habit. NIV says, leave your life of sin. Not to be sinless, but leave your life of sexual sin. Make a clean break from your sexual sin. Now, does Jesus have the right to condemn her? The answer is yes. Does Jesus have the right to fulfill the law of Moses and Stoner? The answer is yes. Because he's the only one without sin. But does he do that? Absolutely not. In his perfection and right and authority to condemn, he shows grace. In fact, Jesus is the only man in this story that is showing her love. Men used her for sex. The religious leaders used her to get at Jesus. But Jesus shows her dignity and grace and mercy. What, is, what does John tell us in John 1? Jesus is what? Full of grace. Jesus is full of truth. He's the expression of grace. He invites all sinners to come. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. You could trust him. You can believe his word. Throughout scripture, he is calling the wicked and the hard-headed and the self-righteous. He's got so much to say to them. And yet he calls the broken and repentant and the merciful, those who are broken over their sin, to repentance. And I want to propose to you this morning that no one in all of history that has ever lived that will ever live, no one in all of history could say on his or her own merit, I do not condemn you. Nobody could say that but Jesus. Why? Because he's without sin? Yes. Is that the only reason? No. 
Jesus is the only one who could say, I do not condemn you. He could be both gracious to sinners and uphold justice. Is because Jesus came to earth, took on flesh and bones, became a man, lived the perfect life to offer himself as the perfect and final sacrifice for sin of which God's justice demands. Jesus was able to say to her, there is no condemnation for you without violating the Old Testament because what he was going to do for her sin, he was going to die as a payment for her sin. Romans says that God's righteousness has been displayed, that he is now the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, whose death satisfied God's wrath against sin. What Jesus will do and what he gives to her is to live a perfect life, listen, live a perfect life without sin in glory and honor of the Father and ultimately be crucified in her place. Second Corinthians says that God made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin. We sang about that. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, family, listen, the condemnation that she deserved, the condemnation that we deserve Our sin was laid on the substitute and his name is Jesus. He gets our condemnation. He got our condemnation. We get his righteousness. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The only sinless person in the temple that day who legitimately could throw a stone showed grace and mercy to this woman. If you're here this morning, your heart is heavy and the load of sin and guilt is great, come to Jesus. His forgiveness is for you. He offers himself as a substitute and sacrifice for your sins. His grace and mercy flows from Calvary. He will not condemn you. He will forgive you. But look what God's grace will do. God's grace does not leave her where it found her. He is calling the woman to a changed life. Jesus forgives her for her sin, but Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. He doesn't wink at transgression. He says, go, no condemnation for you. Go and sin no more. Stop committing adultery. Notice here in our text what comes first. Does he say to her, stop sinning, turn your life around, you're not condemned? Or does he say, you're not condemned, Turn your life around. That's very important order. In other words, why now should she obey the command of God? Why now should she turn her life around? Why now should she stand in the will of God, following the moral standard of God? Nobody wants, God doesn't want us to commit adultery. Don't say I'm under the law, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. God's moral standard is still who he is, right? We still, as Christians, should not commit adultery. But look at the difference. Look at the motive It wasn't because she was worried about getting hit with rocks. She was told to turn and walk in obedience to God because she experienced the grace of God first. You are not condemned. The whole world will condemn you. Everybody wants you. I will not condemn you. Therefore, go. It is, provides the power to change direction. That is the grace of God. She experienced his mercy and his kindness, his unmerited favor, that transforming grace. And when it comes into our heart, it radically changes us. You see, pursuing God's commands, pursuing God's moral standards for your life without a profound experience of grace produces hypocrisy and legalistic meanness. This is not about fearing getting stoned. This is about her being rescued by grace. Encountering Jesus demands and provides transforming life, the turning from sin. Not perfection, but direction. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God. She leaves as a totally different person. Jesus came into the world to offer transforming grace, forgiveness of our sins, and the ability to turn and walk with him. Because on the cross, this great exchange takes place. All my sin, all my sexual sin, all my wickedness, the lust of my heart, all that is nailed to the cross. And Jesus dies in my stead and out of gratitude and grace. I turn from my sin and I walk with Christ, not in perfection. I'm constantly repenting, but I'm constantly being 
forgiven. Does that make sense? He hangs on the cross, he suffers, he's beaten, and he dies on the cross because that woman slept with that man. He offers her forgiveness, new life, and says, walk in it. That's God's will for you. Not to walk in perfection, but to walk in a different direction. To be forgiven of your sins and to be given a new life. And to walk with him each and every day. Filled with his presence, filled with his power. And when we fall and we bust our head and we, and we sin against him and we do, we come back to our God who is now our father because of Jesus Christ. Jesus can give her the opportunity to leave her life of sin and go live this new, eternally governed life because Christ will ultimately pay for her sin. So come to him for grace. Set your face to sin no more. Work toward obeying God, not not for him to love you, not so that he will forgive you, not that he will now accept you, is because he loves you, forgives you, and has already accepted you. Experience his grace and walk in obedience. That's what the Bible calls us. That's the difference between religion and a relationship. Very different. What does this narrative teach us found in Scripture? All of Scripture. Jesus loves sinners. He accepts us where we are. We come to him in our filth, and he cleanses us from our sins. He clothes us and imputes to us his righteousness, fills us with his power, and we walk differently. Not perfectly, differently. If you say, I'm a Christian, there's nothing has changed, you need to go to the scripture and get on your face before God. If you're beating yourself up saying, I haven't changed enough, rest in his grace. Depends on where you're at. Let me read this, and we'll close. In light of what we just learned. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passion. Just like her. Of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... Great but, B-U-T, but. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with you, which he loved you. Even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you've been saved and you've been raised up with him and seated with him in this heavenly realm so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Immeasurable riches of his grace. Immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now listen, for by grace you've been saved. You know the verse. By grace you've been saved. Through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You are not condemned. Nor a result of any work. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Grace. Walk in obedience. You walk in obedience for grace. That's religion. It's a trap. For we were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I, I want to be clear. Help me, please. Salvation is a free gift offered to wicked sinners. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. We can only receive it. Salvation is of grace. Jesus offers this woman no condemnation out of grace. Lord, I pray that not only we receive that grace, we we embrace the Savior, yield the Savior, trust the Savior for our sins. But Lord... Be honest with our hearts that we should walk in newness of life. May we walk differently. May we walk with you. Yes, not sinless. But Lord, may our hearts be drawn closer to the Savior as we walk with him in the good works that you have for us by the power of transforming grace in our life. Let us worship you, we pray. In Jesus' name.